It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you very much, Justin. Good morning. All right. Mark is in Germany this morning or somewhere over across the pond in Europe. He's speaking at a Bible conference. He goes over to Breckerfeld, Germany every other year, uh, has a standing invitation to participate in that. So let's just be praying for him as uh, he preaches and teaches God's Word. Uh, But we're going to remain in our study of uh, 1 Peter this morning, so go ahead and turn your Bibles there. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be at the end of that chapter. This is a series that we've titled Still Standing. The message today is titled Suffering with Christ. Suffering with Christ. Martin Luther, esteemed theologian of the Protestant Reformation, when he came to this section of 1 Peter chapter 3, he could only say these words. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. I do not know for certain what Peter means. I cannot understand it. I cannot explain it. There has been no one who has explained it. So with that... Here goes. First Peter chapter 3. I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 17. The Spirit inspired Peter to write, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And defined expositional preaching It takes the main point of a passage of Scripture and makes it the main point of the sermon. That's what I know Mark seeks to do each and every words up and sanctifies God's people. We believe that as long as our Bibles are open, we can be hearing from God. And so given all of that, our passage today presents remarkable challenges for the preacher who wants to faithfully exposit the scriptures, which is to say it proposes remarkable challenges for me today. A commentator I referenced this week said that verses 19 and 20 contain 180 different exegetical combinations. Now, I'm not sure that's entirely accurate, but it is safe to say that this text goes a lot of different directions. And what I do know from reading this text repeatedly over the course of the last several days is that this is a passage concerned with two primary ideas. Two primary ideas. First, it is supremely concerned with suffering. We see in verse 17, which is a a kind of transitional verse from our text last week to the text this week, Peter says in verse 17 that in certain ways and at certain times, it is God's will for Christians to suffer. It is better, Peter writes, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. 
unless, of course, you choose to root for Oklahoma State, none of us are signing up for suffering. That only landed well for like half the audience. But it resonated. But here in 1 Peter 3, we have an explanation or a reason for the call to suffer as a Christian. It's a sobering call. But it's not just because of verse 17 that gives me reason to say that the primary idea in this passage is suffering. Look at the connection between this closing paragraph in chapter 3 and what follows there at the opening of chapter 4. That's the next unit of text. In chapter 4, it begins, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with that same purpose. So in 3.17 and 3.18 and in the transition into chapter 4, the point is get ready to suffer for uh, for doing what is right if that should be God's will and arm yourselves with that purpose. Five or six verses here bookended with the truth about suffering. And, And if suffering sounds irrelevant to you, it may be because you are just insulated from the bigger world outside our own little context. And maybe you are also removed from from the longer history outside of our little moment in time. And what I mean is this, for, for, for most of the world, Christian or not, for most of the world, suffering is a daily reality. And for most of history, being a Christian has not been safe. Church historian Stephen Neal says in his History of Christian Missions that in the first three centuries when the church was spreading like wildfire across the ancient world, Neal writes, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his own life. Think of that. Imagine doing evangelism in a context where you could not make any promises to people that things were going to go better for them if they believed what it was you were offering. In fact, they might be risking their lives. That was was normal in the context of this letter of 1 Peter. And, And normal in most of the places of the world for most of the time. Today, it is normal in most places to suffer for being a Christian. To be safe and respected as a Christian is, is an exception, not the rule throughout church history. And that should not be surprising at all to us because Jesus said the most sweeping thing in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. He said, you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And yet I get the impression that that people in our churches today, they are in a very bitter sort of reactionary mood. We we think the liberal, secular elites have have taken our Christian world from us. And, And that may or may not be true. But to what degree does our bitterness and fear reveal that we really don't want to believe that Jesus promised suffering? Even less do we want to believe that that God has, has willed suffering for us, which makes it the right time for a heavy dose of 1 Peter. 
A heavy dose of 1 Peter, as in chapter 4, verse 12. Do not be surprised, Peter writes, that when the fiery ordeal comes upon you, don't be surprised. Don't think it's something strange is happening to you. Time and again, Peter is laboring in this epistle to say that we are aliens and exiles here, and it should not at all be surprising when we are treated that way. It should not be at all shocking when the cultural powers at B revile us because of our faith. So in this text today, and in the whole letter, Peter is laboring to help us ready ourselves for suffering. Suffering that is either here or that is coming, if God should will it. So that's the first thing this passage is chiefly about, suffering. The second is this passage is deeply concerned with exalting and praising and marveling at the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way I've broken down your notes. Four sections, all of them specifically relating to Jesus Christ. The four points are Christ's substitution, Christ's proclamation, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's ascension. So we're going to talk all about Jesus this morning, and I really, I wouldn't have it any other way. So first, let's look at Christ's substitution. Notice what he says to start the paragraph there in verse 18. For Christ also suffered. Again, what did I tell you this whole section of chapter 3 was about? It's about suffering. These Christians he is writing to are suffering. So he says, guess what, folks? Christ also suffered. And and the point he's making is our Savior, Jesus Christ, he is one with us in our experience of of suffering. The one to whom you pray, the the one who is your hope in life, the one whose grace you depend on, he, he walked where you walk, lived where you live, suffered in the myriad of ways that you have suffered. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with what? With grief. Christ can meet you in your grief because he is a man of sorrow. John Piper, reflecting on the shooting at Sutherland Springs, Texas, a couple of years ago in 2017, which, gosh, the events of this last week on Friday in Virginia Beach sort of make this fresh. He wrote these words in a short article. He said, what kind of savior do we need when our hearts are shredded by brutal loss? We need a suffering savior. We need a savior who has tasted the cup of horror that we are being forced to drink. And that is how he came. He he knew what this world needed. Not a comedian, not a sports hero, not a movie star, not a political genius, not a doctor, not even a pastor. The world needed what no mere man could be. The world needed a suffering sovereign. Mere suffering would not do. Mere sovereignty would not do. The one is not strong enough to save. The other is not weak enough to sympathize. So he came as who he was, the compassionate king, the crushed conqueror, the lamb-like lion, the suffering sovereign. You don't seek the help of one who is not able to understand profoundly your experience. You seek one who is a fellow sufferer. This is huge news, but it gets even huger. 
Christ is not merely a fellow sufferer. No, his suffering, it had a certain purpose, which was to be our substitute. Christ is our substitute. The meat of verse 18 is one of the clearest, most crisp statements of the gospel in all of Scripture. I love it. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let's break that down. First, Christ suffered. I want to enter into that a little bit further. The Lord of the universe endured pain and loss and separation and chastisement and mocking and injustice and abandonment. He suffered. Whatever suffering you have endured or whatever suffering you might be currently enduring, your Savior can meet you there because he suffered. He is present in your suffering. Isn't that sometimes all you really need? is to know that he's there, to know that he is present. Not profound truths, not platitudes, just a sign, an indication of the Lord's presence. A man who lost three sons at various times in his life, he wrote about grief in a book called The View from a Hearse. Not a stirring title, but a profound one. But listen to this. This is, this is heavy. This is weighty. He writes, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Just a ministry of presence. A ministry of presence. I remember about 12 years ago, at the passing of my father, uh, he, he was buried and the funeral was over in the Tulsa area. And that's a, 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 a time of, of profound loss and grief in life when you lose a parent, when you lose a dad. And I remember there were two men in our church, brothers, Ash Bullard and Seth Bullard, and I've never even talked to them about this except for mentioning it today. They, they came to the funeral. They didn't know my dad. They knew he had passed away. They came to the funeral. They didn't even talk to me at the funeral. They didn't say hello. They didn't offer a hug. They just came. They were present. They were surrounding my family with a host of others. And that was profoundly meaningful for me. It's a ministry of presence. We've all experienced the strength of that. That's what Christ offers to us as one who can be present in our suffering. But then it says his suffering was once for all. When, when, when Peter writes that Christ died once for all, he means that Christ's death was sufficient for all time, and therefore it could never be repeated by anyone else. Not even Christ himself could die again for our sins. It's work that was final. It's his work that was the thoroughly complete sacrifice for sins. And so Peter writes next, that this sacrifice was the righteous for the unrighteous. Said another way, the, un, the just one for the unjust ones. He did that so that we might be accepted by God. We cannot in and of ourselves achieve that acceptance. 
And we cannot in ourselves satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. We need someone to both live the life we were supposed to live and die the death that we were supposed to die. Which is precisely why God's wrath revealed for sinners was delivered to Jesus Christ at the cross. That was a wrath meant for us, a wrath deserved by us, and Jesus stood in our place and drank every last ounce of it. Hear me now on this. Substitutionary atonement, the belief that Christ died in our place, died as our substitute, condemned and punished as a sinner, this is a doctrine in our day that many are trying to undermine and to minimize. But it is an absolutely essential part of the gospel message. The great evangelical scholar John Stott, he wrote that substitution is the essence and heart of the atonement itself. He goes on to explain in his book, The Cross of Christ, which is a phenomenal work. I commend it to you. But listen to this. This is kind of a longer section, but there's so much good thing, so much good stuff in here. Stott wrote, How could God express simultaneously his holiness in judgment and his love in pardon? Only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon. We sinners still, of course, have to suffer some of the personal, psychological, and social consequences of our sins, but the penal consequences, the deserved penalty of alienation from God, that has been borne by another in our place so that we may be spared it. The the words of the hymn writer should sort of rise up in us here. Amazing love. How can that be? But love isn't all. Don't view Christ's death as your substitute just myopically. Don't observe substitution from the the single angle of God's love. Consider one of the most powerful statements that I've really read outside of the Bible. It's by J.I. Packer. He wrote, The wrath of God is as personal and as potent as his love. The wrath of God is as personal and as potent as his love. Which means this, to the extent that Jesus dying on the cross is an outlandish and overwhelming display of God's love for me, which there's no more potent proof of God's love for me than the cross. So just as God's love for me is personal, so was the manner in which Jesus endured God's wrath for me as well. Meaning, on the cross, Jesus did not atone for my sin in a general way. He atoned for my sin in a personal way. My iniquity was laid upon him. Your iniquity was laid upon him. That that thing you did 20 years ago that you've never been able to to shake the guilt or the shame from, that thing, or, or that thing last week, or maybe last night, Jesus took the full measure of punishment for that. His love for you is potent and personal because his death for you was potent and personal. You see that? He was put to death in the flesh. He had a real body. He was 100% man. He suffered in the flesh and was made alive in the spirit. The end of verse 18 is further encouragement to Peter's readers that even though Jesus died because of his commitment to God's will, And it was God's will for him to die, for him to suffer. 
he also experienced resurrection. And because of the resurrection, therefore, we remain hopeful. We remain hopeful with the confidence that God will, will also vindicate and proclaim victory for us as well. He's your substitute. Jesus died in your place. He didn't broadly die for the unrighteous. He died for your particular unrighteousness. Everything you deserved was paid for by Jesus Christ. He's your substitute. Let's look at the next two verses. This is where things get a little bit tricky. Christ's proclamation. Peter continuing with the realm of the Spirit there in verse 19. And in so doing, he begins to address something Christ did in the Spirit, which the verse tells us what he did. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so the questions that confront us here are many. Where, where did Christ go to make this proclamation? When did he go? Who were the spirits he proclaimed to? What is meant by in prison? And we could just kind of keep going with questions if we really sat here and thought about it. And as you can imagine, there are a myriad of different answers to these questions. I'm going to mention one interpretation of this that is very valid. It's an, a valid interpretation that I don't hold to. And then I'm going to tell you what I do think Peter is talking about here. Some reputable teachers, reputable scholars, uh, men I, I trust and would commend to you, they say that this verse is talking about Christ's disembodied spirit, who between his death on the cross and his resurrection, he it went to the underworld and proclaimed victory over the demonic spirits that were held there. These demonic spirits, they had taken bodily form in Noah's day. They'd copulated with women in an effort to corrupt all of mankind. Genesis 6 is the reference for that. And because of this evil that these spirits were up to, God banished them to a place referred to as Tartarus in Greek mythology. And it was to these spirits that Christ made his victorious proclamation. Now that's a, a very simple synopsis of a valid view of this text. There are really good arguments for that view. Men like John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, even Mark Hitchcock hold to this interpretation. I don't. I know. <laughs> Don't walk out on me. What I think Peter is saying is that the Spirit of Christ, the pre-incarnate Spirit of Christ, preached through the testimony and obedience of Noah. Let me explain that. Noah's day was wicked. He was the only faithful man found on the earth. And when he heard from God and set to work building the ark, his obedience to God was a spirit-inspired proclamation of judgment upon all those who would not repent and believe in God. One of the reasons I arrive here is the precedent in 1 Peter concerning the spirit of Christ speaking through the Old Testament prophets. Chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when the predicted sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories would come. So, so the Spirit of Christ speaks through the prophets. That's what we're told in chapter 1. Noah was the earliest of the prophets. He was pronouncing the judgment of God that would come with the global flood. That's why 2 Peter chapter 2, it refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And the Spirit proclaimed the truth through Noah to a wicked and disobedient generation. For 120 years, Noah heralded the importance of believing in God. 
No one would listen. In fact, Noah was mocked and belittled, and the days continued to be so wicked that God would ultimately send his judgment. And so you see, Noah was this original exile. He was part of a faithful few who were steadfast and obedient to God when the world around them rebelled and sinned against God. And you say, well, yeah, Jay, that, that seems like it could be valid, but, but what about that prepositional phrase, in prison? What does that mean? Jesus wasn't speaking through Noah to people who were in jail. How do you explain that? Well, there's a very common way of speaking. When we talk, we, we mix history. For instance, you may say, the queen was born in 1925. And in saying that, you've mixed history. What I mean is, she wasn't actually the queen in 1925, but you know that people will understand what you're talking about. The infant girl who would later become queen was born in 1925. You don't have to say, the person who has now become the queen, but wasn't the queen then, was born in 1925, because just that would be exhausting. And so Peter's saying, those people who were rebellious and mockers in Noah's day, those who rejected the message of God's servant, are now the spirits in prison who are awaiting the final judgment. They were disobedient then. They are in prison now. This is the view that I hold. It's the view of Augustine. Many of the reformers held to this. Contemporary teachers like Wayne Grudem and John Piper, R.C. Sproul, I believe, they hold to this view. In this view, it fits the context because the believers Peter is writing to, they could relate to Noah. That's the parallel that Peter is making. The world they were living in was increasingly wicked. They were trying to be faithful and obedient to what God had called them to be as the church. They were facing marginalization and suffering for what they believed. And and just the same, Noah was called to suffer. And that suffering was extensive. He took a long time to build that ark, 120 years. There was no water. Building an ark seemed like an act of distinct foolishness. Noah Noah looked like a crazy man. And do you ever, do you ever, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're saying out loud what you believe about the virgin birth or the authority of Scripture or the existence of a God you've never actually seen. Do do you ever think when you're saying these things, man, this is kind of hard to believe. This this is kind of like building a boat for a global flood and there's no rain in sight. Do you ever think that to yourself? Noah must have thought himself crazy. I mean, at year 40, what am I doing? At year 80, what, what, what is going on? At year 100, at year 110. But he acted, Noah did, on one thing. Noah acted on the command of God, and he believed that God was to be trusted. He believed that God's word was true, and he acted accordingly. And by that act, he preached a message of repentance to the people who watched him for 12 decades construct a giant boat. Imagine being Noah. Imagine what he endured day after day, year after year, decade after decade until that ark was built and that global flood came. And his faith was vindicated as Noah and his family were saved from the death and the destruction of the flood. Just as Noah believed God and was saved, 
So these exiled Christians, whom the Spirit of Christ is also speaking through by their ongoing witness and by their obedience, they are going to be saved as well. They would be vindicated by God's judgment. What great encouragement here from Peter. But that's not the only tricky part of the passage. Let's move to verse 21. Next point in your notes, Christ's resurrection. But before we talk about Christ's resurrection... We have this statement about baptism we have to navigate. And Peter brings up baptism probably because he had just mentioned water. The eight persons that made up Noah's family, they were brought safely through the water. They were saved through water. But if they had been in the water and not in the ark, the water that saved them would have actually destroyed them. The water wiped out the old world and at the same time delivered them into a new world. So the floodwaters symbolize baptism. What then does Peter mean when he says baptism now saves you? Does that mean we have to be baptized to be saved? Does it mean something supernatural or mystical or magical happens in the waters of our baptism? Let me answer those questions with another question. How much water actually touched Noah and his family? None. So the water that saved them never touched them. The water only saved them in its judgment of the wicked, because they were already in the ark. Baptism by itself cannot literally save anyone because we believe it is Christ alone who saves us. Baptism cannot literally by itself wash our sins away. We must come to Christ by faith to be cleansed from our unrighteousness. But baptism is crucially important because it is the pledge of a good conscience to the Lord. Baptism is like pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's the moment in which we cross the line to take our public stand for the Lord Jesus. In many Muslim countries today, Christian converts, they are not persecuted, they are not imprisoned, they are not stoned or beaten until they are baptized. In Sudan and Libya and Niger and Saudi Arabia, baptism can be a life or death decision. Because what baptism means, it means you've decided to leave the old world behind and get in the ark of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be delivered into a new world, a new reality. So the issue is not have you been baptized, but rather have you become a follower of Jesus? Are you united with Christ? We're not saved by water literally any more than, than, than Noah was saved by water literally. The point of baptism is not to go in the water. We don't, people, we don't put people in the water and, and hold them under. The point of baptism is to come up out of the water. The same water that destroyed others saved Noah's family. They came out of the water. Why? Because they were in the ark. Look to Christ. If you've never looked to Christ, if you know through the Spirit's proclamation to your heart today that you are not in relationship with God through the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus, that you are effectively under His judgment and not under His grace, get in the ark that is Christ. Look to Him and be saved. Peter adds one final phrase when he says we're saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I love that because what he's saying is we do not worship a dead Jesus this morning. 
If we did, our hopes and our dreams would have died with him. We worship a risen Christ. And with that statement, we see how perfect the picture of baptism really is. The waters of the great flood picture the waters of baptism. And the waters of baptism point to something of supreme significance. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here at the end of the month, when a baptismal candidate, when they stand in the water, that person represents Jesus dying on the cross. And they're dying with him. And lowering, lowering them into the water represents Jesus being buried in the tomb. And they've been buried with him. And then raising them out of the water represents Jesus rising from the dead. They have risen with Christ, new creations. A corresponding death, burial, and resurrection. It, it, it happens in the life of each believer, and baptism is a symbol of all of that. The, the whole gospel is found in that beautiful ordinance. And every baptism preaches the gospel message. Again, we're doing that on June 30th. If you've never been baptized, you can sign up to, to get on that list today. Peter closes his treatise on Christ with a final soaring statement about his authority. Look at verse 22. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in subjection to him. In the Bible, the right hand is the position of honor and authority. To be at God's right hand means you are in a preeminent position. That the highest spot in all of the universe, Christ is now in heaven because his earthly work of redemption is thoroughly complete. And by his death and resurrection, all creatures are subjected to his sovereign power and might. The Greek verb translated submission means to line up under someone. It's a military term. Every being in existence lines up under Jesus. Even the devil has to line up under Jesus and take orders from him. One of the major themes we've looked at in 1 Peter is the theme of submission. Peter is repeatedly calling Christians to be subject and, and submissive in the different spheres of their lives. But look now how the how the passage closes. Everything, everything, every category is subjected unto Christ. We can be submissive as people because ultimately the one who loves us and died for us now sits at God's right hand. Everything is subjected to him. We don't need to be in control because we're in relationship with the one who is in absolute control. We can give up power and position because our trust is in the one with the ultimate power and the ultimate position. He has ascended, and he is not idle at God's right hand. He is ruling, and he is reigning, and he is interceding, and he's preparing to come again. Tim Keller says this about the ascension. He says, you can face the world with peace in your heart because Jesus is at the right hand of God as the executive director of history, directing everything for the benefit of the church. If you belong to him, then everything that happens ultimately happens for you. The ascension may be the most important doctrine you never think about. You probably didn't even know that Thursday, this last Thursday, May 30th, it was Ascension Day, 40 days after Easter, Ascension Day. It's an important day on the church calendar. If Jesus were dead, his absence would require no explanation. 
right? None of us wonder why we've never seen Paul or, or, or Peter or Julius Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte. We don't, we don't wonder these things because they're dead, but he's not dead. And so his absence requires explanation. That explanation is his ascension. And when you think about it, we worship and we love a man we've never seen. As Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor in chapter 1 of this epistle, though you have not seen him, you love him. That describes us, or at least it should. As I said early on in this message, I think Peter's primary goal in this passage is to encourage you. It's not to confuse you about a trip that Jesus took to the underworld or whether or not baptism saves you. It's to encourage you. So I would ask you this morning, when you're discouraged, when you're suffering to whatever degree you might be suffering, what do you do? Do you eat to numb the pain? Do you drink a lot? Maybe you binge on something else. Maybe you turn on the television for hours and hours and hours hoping that you can just escape your discouragement and your grief. Maybe you question the love and the faithfulness of God. Or maybe you give yourself away to, to victim themes. You tell yourself how, how unusually hard your life is, harder than anybody that you know. What do you do when you're discouraged or when you're suffering? I think Peter's given you something to work with here. He's encouraging you with the truth about Jesus Christ, with the substitutionary work of Christ on your behalf, with, with the suffering of your very Savior himself. He's encouraging you with the gospel and with the legacy of the people of God. And he's encouraging you with the reality of the redemption that is going on for you right now. Yes, you are saved, but you are being saved and you will be saved. And you remember that Christ, the one who suffers with you, doesn't just call you to suffer for him, but says, no, I will suffer with you. That Savior, he now rules on your behalf. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for what's here for us to encourage us. But most of all, thank you for the sending of your son. The one who came and suffered for us. Suffered as our substitutes. And now rules at your right hand, waiting to come again. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, renew in us afresh just a profound sense of what it meant for Christ to be our substitute to die in our place, to suffer alongside. It's in his name we pray. Amen.